the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or life questions or doctrine questions, pretty much whatever's on your heart and mind. I'll do the best I can to answer from the Word. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can uh, send your questions in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car. The safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, there'll be a banner that says call now. You just touch that and then you can use the hands-free feature and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Well, it's Wednesday. That means two things for us. First, we've got a Bible study tonight. I'm going to be doing Isaiah chapter 34 and I hope chapter 35. Can't make any promises, but Isaiah 34 and 35 tonight. Uh, And then, of course, tomorrow being Thursday, that means Paula will be live in studio with me uh, on the date day edition of the program. So, ladies, that's the day that we set aside especially for you. If you have any questions or need any encouragement, Paula will be here for you. Let me get right to some questions while we're waiting for the phone to ring. Uh, Here is an anonymous question. Pastor, how can the church be more in unity than it is now? Churches can't agree on much. Uh, Anonymous, you're right, but that's not bad. Now, remember, unity is not the same thing as uniformity. I say that often because we need to make that distinction. It doesn't mean that we can, nor does it mean that we even should agree on everything. Um, That's why we study the word to to show ourselves rightly approved. Um, that's, That's... why churches go off in different directions because they have different takes on scripture and honestly anonymous the the scriptures in some places have been so misrepresented that there's a lot of people who don't know um, good doctrine from bad doctrine so again remember unity is not uniformity Um, we can disagree on Minor things, and when I say minor things, uh, anything that's not an essential of our faith. So I think the true Church of Jesus Christ, for sure, is in unity regarding the deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that he was a man, that he lived, that he died, that he was risen from the dead, that he paid the price for our sins. Those are essentials, that he was born of a virgin, that he's coming back again. Those are the things that we have to be in unity on. Now, there are some other things, but those are the basic things. I think one of the reasons that the church isn't more in unity than than we, we would think possible 
uh, is because there's just not an emphasis any longer on teaching the Word. You know, the Bible is sort of uh, ignored. I always think of Josiah, the boy king, who found out the Word was gone. It was missing. Years went by, and they found the Word of God hiding in the house of God. And he had somebody bring it out and read it to him, and he was moved. You see, that's what the Word of God does. And we've made church sort of a cultural event. We've made church uh, a fun thing. We've made church uh, uh, an uplifting experience. Now, all of those things should happen sometimes. But the truth is, if we're really going to teach the Word, if we really want unity then what we've got to do is we've, we've got to open the Bible, we've got to teach it, equip the saints for the work of ministry. And until that happens, Anonymous, I just don't think there's going to be more unity. I think our perspective, especially here in the United States, about what church is, you know, it's more than just filling seats or having offering plates full. Church is a place where people come who are sick, they come to get well. Church is a place where people come and we have the opportunity to use the gifts that God has given each one of us to do that very thing, to to let people know not only that God loves them, but there are people that love them too, simply by virtue of being in the same church family. And with the lack of emphasis on going to church, with the lack of attention to the Word of God, I think honestly um, this is pretty much what's going to happen. Again, it's not all bad anonymous that we don't agree on things. Um, you know, I, I teach the Bible. We're tonight's Bible study as an example in the, the, the prophecy of Isaiah. Um, you know, it's going to take me a long, long time to get through the 66 books of Isaiah. And there's some people who simply don't respond to that kind of teaching. Uh, I'm not exciting. You know, people come to Calvary Chapel, San Antonio, and if they're looking for a charismatic, performance-oriented preacher, they're, they're not going to get that here. We're going to teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter after chapter. And that's just not everybody's liking. So I, I think we can appreciate the unity that is absolutely, and uniformity that's necessary in the essentials of the faith. But we can give people a little bit of grace when it comes to doctrinal issues that are not essentials, whether the gifts of the Spirit are for today, whether you can lose your salvation. I said a couple leave our church because they believe you can lose your salvation. That's okay. It's okay. I I can challenge them to exegete a passage and they won't be able to do it. But the whole point is, that we've got to give people space to disagree. And that's got to be okay with us. So, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. Um, one thing that I obviously forgot in answering that question is if the Spirit moves and there is a revival through a revival, then I think we'll see more unity. But short of the work of the Spirit, that's just not going to happen. Here is another anonymous question. It says, can someone be a believer in Jesus and be saved, but not a disciple? What is the difference between being a believer and a disciple as it relates to salvation? Uh, Anonymous, people can believe with their mind. I, I think there's a very important distinction to make here. We can believe that Jesus is who he said he was. We can believe that he's the Son of God and God the Son. We can believe all of the necessary things. But believing in our mind isn't a salvation issue. Even the devil believes. The demons believe. So we can know the right stuff, but unless it's gotten into our heart, I think the idea between a disciple and a believer is somebody saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, so I must be saved. But a disciple saying, I believe in Jesus, I want to be more like him. And I want to learn more about him so I can learn what he wants from me and how I can please him. The word disciple, every time you see it in your Bible, it means a student. In in Jesus' very Jewish ministry, each rabbi had their own disciples. John the Baptist had his own disciples, and 
than Jesus, of course. Uh, those people end up following, following Jesus. Um, but the idea is um, a disciple is somebody who wants to crack open the books. I want to learn more about him so I can be more like him. I want to learn what his will for my life is. A disciple is somebody who's going to obey the Lord and follow him. And nobody does it perfectly, but a true disciple wants to aim for perfection. So as it relates to the difference as, as uh, regarding salvation, Anonymous, I think the answer to that question is uh, the person who just has a, an intellectual assent to the person of Jesus Christ isn't going to be a person that's saved. That has to get into their heart. What Jesus told Nicodemus, that you must be born again. He said it twice. You of all people should know that, or not be surprised when I say you must be born again. I'm going all the way back to Ezekiel. He'll turn your stony heart to fleshy heart. In other words, that hard heart to something that's pliable and workable. Well, that's what happens when we get born again. And when we're born again, Anonymous, then we have to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, but also a learner about him and of him and from him in the process. So somebody who just knows Jesus, knows who he is, um, Jesus said to uh, Jewish religious leaders, he said, uh, many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, but I never knew you, so depart from me. And they said, well, no, no, we, we knew all about you. We, we knew where you lived, and we saw the things that you did, Jesus will say. None of that matters. The, the thing that matters is, are you known in heaven? And that's why being born again is so important, Anonymous. It's, it's an essential for our faith. You know, somebody who says, Pastor Ron, I've been going to church for my whole life, um, and I know about God but hasn't been born again. That's a person who's still lost in their sins. So it's really important we understand that difference. Hope that helps. Here is a question from Russell. He wants to know, how much alcohol is okay to drink as a Christian? Um, I'm a non-drinker, Russell. I, I don't know how to answer that question if you're asking the question, how much can I drink and still be saved? Boy, isn't it a dangerous line to try to traverse? It's like saying, well, how much sin can I get away with and still be sure I'm going to heaven? Uh, Russell, I don't think there's anything at all of value ever associated with alcohol. Ever, ever, ever. I've been a pastor for 24 years. And I've never had somebody come to me and tell me how alcohol has enriched their life or drawn them closer to Jesus. I've seen families, families I thought were solid in their walk with the Lord, destroyed, devastated by alcohol. I've seen children secretly crying because their parents drink too much. So how much alcohol is okay to drink? That's between you and the Lord. You can never get drunk, and if you get buzzed, you're drunk, you're impaired, you're giving Satan a foothold. Um, if you need to drink to go to sleep at night or to relax at night, then you're being brought under the control of alcohol. If you feel abnormal, if you don't drink, then you're drinking too much. I think the greater question, Russell, is why do you need to drink? Why do you want to drink? Now, I know people say, well, I like the taste, and, you know, God bless you if that's the case. But wouldn't it be a better use of your freedom to drink? Wouldn't it be a better use not to drink? To make sure that your witness wasn't compromised? I think of Noah, who got drunk. I think of Lot, who got drunk. Look at the terrible things that happened. So there just isn't anything at all good. Now, having said that, Russell, the, the only strict prohibition against drinking is getting drunk. People who live like that as a drunkard will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul said, though all things are 
permissible. I will not be brought under the control of anything. And I don't think enough of us, even as Christians, are honest with our dependence on alcohol. And now in these days, as things are changing in our world with marijuana and other things, I don't think we're honest. People say, well, I could stop anytime I want. And I say, well, okay, stop. Just to prove you're right, stop. Well, I don't want to. And they don't want to because they can't. So Russell is somebody who's seen unbelievable devastation from alcohol and drugs. Let me ask you to ask the Lord, what does he want for you? And then I always say this when I get a question like this, Russell, if you're asking that question, seems like the Holy Spirit is already giving you the answer. He's the one who's pricking your heart. Why do you need to do this? So I would say don't drink at all. If you're going to drink, I can't say it's a sin. But I can say it does nothing at all for your spirit. And it will destroy your flesh if you give it the opportunity. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Mandy. She wants to know if I would marry a believer to an unbeliever if they were pregnant. Uh, Mandy, I would never marry a believer and an unbeliever. Now, I've married two unbelievers before. Um, certainly, I've married lots of believers. And I've even married believers who I knew were unequally yoked in terms of their commitment to the Lord. But to marry a believer, to perform a ceremony in a relationship that I knew was going to cause nothing but pain would, to me, for me, be a violation. Now, a couple of things that we need to think about in this situation. What about the, what about the baby? Would it be better if the baby had a a father and a mother in the home? The answer to that question is no. The baby needs to be with the believer, with the believing mother. Or in another case, it might be a believing father. But a baby being raised in a home where one person loves Jesus, the other person wants nothing to do with them. I want you to think about that for a moment. Paul is Many of you have heard, got saved 13 years before I did. She became a believer, and I made her life even more miserable as a result. Uh, It hasn't been too long here at Calvary Chapel when one of our girls who loves Jesus with all of her heart, she got caught. She and her boyfriend had sex one time. She got pregnant. I always tell people that's because God is going to make sure you get busted. He's not going to let you get away with stuff. And at that particular time, the boyfriend wasn't a believer. And we told her not to. Don't feel like you have to get married just because you're pregnant. In the relationship, take a stand for Jesus and see what God does. And we've seen that work out wonderfully. We've seen it not work out at all. But in the case that I just mentioned, um, her stand for Jesus made him really look into his own heart because he thought he was okay. And not only did he get saved, but he's become a great husband and a great father. But many, I just could not in good conscience marry a believer to an unbeliever knowing the kind of pain that that unequally oaked relationship is going to cause. Can I say this too as well? Not for you, Mandy, I answered your question, but just for everybody. One of the really distressing things that goes through this pastor's heart in life is I watch these young women normally, not always, but normally, they grow up, in the church, they know the Lord, they love the Lord, but then they go away to college or in the work world or wherever it is the Lord is, uh, the, the world is taking them. And they're just not careful about who they're dating. They date somebody who says he's a Christian just because, well, he's a Christian, so, and, and 
they need to watch the lives of these men for a time. And to watch these young women get trapped into unequally yoked relationships is just more pain than I can describe. So don't date an unbeliever. Don't even entertain the thought of dating an unbeliever. One of the problems with social media hookups, you, you don't know anything about the person other than what they tell you. You don't have a chance to see, to sort of measure where their heart for God is. And when you get trapped in one of these unequally yoked relationships, there's more pain than you can possibly imagine. So Mandy, thanks for the question, and pray along with me that other people will take my counsel. Do not get involved with unbelievers, and it happens all the time. Like, it's not in the Bible. Like, it's not a big deal. It's a tragedy. Jennifer says, Is it true that more people are going to hell than heaven? I can't imagine that's true. Well, Jennifer, all you have to do is read Jesus' words. He says the road to destruction is wide. The road is wide and that, that well-traveled. But the road that leads to salvation is narrow, and he says few find it. That's out of Jesus' own mouth. Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't want more people to go to heaven. In fact, he wants everybody to go to heaven. But there's only one way to get to heaven, and that's believing in Jesus Christ by being born again. And the people that don't want to stop sinning, even when they lay claim to Jesus with their mouth, they don't know him at all. And that describes a whole bunch of people. And Jennifer, even the question that you're asking, you know, the idea that if more people are going to hell, somehow that's, that's on God, who's holy and just, and his judgments are righteous, true, Sadly, there's going to be a lot more people who spend eternity in hell being tormented than who will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus being blessed. It's not what he wants, but that's the way it's going to be. Jennifer, that's the reality. When I started out my walk with the Lord, I sort of figured that everybody wanted to be saved. You know, I, I knew what Jesus had done for me. Um, I got slapped in the face with that reality all the time. People didn't really care. They wanted to do what they want to do. Now, the truth is we want to sin and still go to heaven, but that's just not something that God's going to let us get away with. And so, Jennifer, what I'd ask you to do is take your passion. I mean, I, you know, I can't imagine that's true, you say, and I, I can tell it breaks your heart. But take that passion and sort of flip a switch and turn it into motivation to tell people, everybody that you come across about Jesus. If your heart really hurts because somebody's going to be judged in hell, then you tell them how they can avoid being judged. If that's your heart, I can promise you God will give you so more, so many opportunities to share the gospel and tell people, look, here's the only thing you have to do to get to heaven. And explain why. Don't make apologies for it. Explain why. The standard of heaven is perfection. And you can look around this world, Jennifer, and see that there's not a lot of perfect people. In fact, there are none. And the only way for us to get to heaven with that standard, perfection, the only way to get to heaven is to have Jesus give us his perfection in exchange for our sin. And if you think about it like that, Jennifer, it becomes really, really good news and you won't be so reluctant to share with others. Here is a question. We've got maybe time for one more before our break. Uh, Michael says, how can I keep from hating people who live in ways that defy God, you know, Michael, um, our flesh is so ugly, isn't it? And we see somebody who's living in a lifestyle that is offensive to us, and we just think, that's terrible. How could they live like that? And the devil is going to be right there to try to stir up hatred. 
What we need to do is see that person through the eyes of God. Maybe even more clear, through the heart of God. And that person that you find their lifestyle offensive, Jesus loves that person as much as he loves you. And you've got his heart. Romans 5, 5 says the love of God has been poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit. So all you have to do is say, Lord, by faith, I don't feel love toward this person, but by faith, I want to love them like you love them. And then you begin praying for him, Michael, and God will change your heart, I promise you. My heart absolutely breaks when I see people defiantly rebelling against God. The culture that we live in, it's everywhere, and it's even infiltrating the church. It's easy to be angry. It's easy to view them as an enemy. But instead of being the enemy of the ministry God's given you, remember that they're the object of the ministry that God has given you. And if you see them as sinners who need a Savior, I promise you God will change your heart. Good question, Michael. Thank you for the heart that wants to change. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. The phones have been quiet, so please call 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We have 30 minutes left. Enough time for your calls and questions at 340-9585 or if you're outside the local San Antonio area, 877-630-5757. That is our toll-free number. Hey, I was just informed by my producer that today, in 1967, June the 5th, 1967, was the Six-Day War in 1973, the miraculous victory uh, against all odds. This is one of those times when God was fighting for Israel. And uh, while it was assumed by the rest of the world that if they went to war, that the Arab nations around them unified in their desire to destroy completely the people of God, the the nation of Israel. Um, it just thought everybody thought it would be a massacre, and yet it it was a massacre, just not the way that everybody expected. So, uh, 1967, I was um, a sophomore in high school. In 1967, I didn't realize the significance. I wasn't a believer, of course. But looking back on that and then the Yom Kippur War in 1973, believe me, you don't want to mess with Israel. So that's a good anniversary. Here is a question from Diane. I like this question. Diane says, what does it mean to take every thought captive? Uh, Let me add to that, Diane, because it's make it captive to be obedient to, to Christ. So here's what that means practically. Um, We have thoughts, our our flesh, our mind is just uh, always active. Um, We have an enemy who brings uh, unclean thoughts to us and tempts us with things. And to take those thoughts captive means to first identify the source. The source of that thought is either my flesh, the world, or the devil. Uh, I, I know it's a thought, but if I acted out on it, it doesn't please the Lord. So I'm going to take that captive, and instead of doing what I'm thinking or what I'm being tempted to do, I'm going to turn that captive thought into obedience to the Lord. So if I'm angry, I'll just give you an example. If I'm angry and I'm getting madder and madder as time goes on, just thinking about it, then I've got to actually start thinking about Jesus. I've got to start thinking about what he's done for me. That way I can replace the angry thought with thoughts of gratitude. And then when I'm thinking of Jesus, when I'm grateful to him, I'm not going to sin in my anger. And you have to fight all day, every day. And and there's a a million things, sexual thoughts, uh, unforgiveness, bitterness, 
um, just all kinds of things. And we've got to recognize that when those thoughts come, the purpose of an enemy, what he'll use that thought to do is to try to destroy you or destroy your witness for the Lord. And since we don't want that to happen, we simply have to say, wait a minute, I know the source of this thought. I'm not going to give in to this thought because I choose today. I choose of my own free will to do that which pleases God instead of that which displeases God. So that's what it means. Now, when when Paul says take every thought captive, he's talking in specific context about the evil thoughts and temptations that come. Um, I don't have to take a thought captive if the thought is 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 dealing with how grateful I am to God, how much he's done for me. Those are the kinds of things that we can let our minds just sort of run loose on. But we have to get up every morning. And Diane, I don't know about you, but I'm not a super, super morning person. I mean, I get up, I get busy. But, um, you, you know, I, I don't wake up and praise the Lord. Paul is just the opposite of me. You know, it's, it's one of those things I got to remind myself, oh, yes, I'm a servant of God. Jesus, good morning. I got to remind myself of those things. My mind starts working quickly. So what I've got to do is get up in the morning. I go actually go through a, a mechanism that I use um, to, to remind me who I belong to, remind me of the promises I've made to the Lord, and then say, okay, Jesus, I give these thoughts, I give this day, I give the problems that are going to come up, I give the wonderful things that are going to come up, I give them all to you. The good things are for your glory. The hard things, well, I'm going to turn those into things for your glory by taking the thought captive. So that's what it means. If you have an ugly thought toward another person, to take it captive and make it obedient to Christ would say, you know, Jesus, I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to thank you for what this person's done in my life. I may be angry with her now or with him now, but I'm going to take that thought captive and remember how much you love him or how much you love her. And if we can do that, then the enemy has no opening. And when James, the Lord's half-brother, said, resist the devil and he will flee from you, I think the reason that doesn't work for a lot of us, for most of us, is that we're really not resisting it. As long as we're focusing on on the thing that we're not supposed to be focusing on, we're going to find ourselves in trouble. I had a guy, Diane, once who was trying to quit smoking. And he really wanted to do it for the Lord. And he said, Pastor Ron, every day I get up and all I can think about is cigarettes. So here's what I do. I keep saying, I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to smoke. And he says, you know what I end up doing? I end up smoking. And I said, it's because you're thinking about the thing that you're not supposed to do. So instead of that, think about Jesus. When the desire for a cigarette comes up, the same thing could be true with the drink. The question we had earlier, I think, from Russell about how much is it okay to drink. Instead of thinking about drinking, how about getting up in the morning and saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to think about you. I want to spend time with you. I want to see how close I can get to you. And that's practically what it means to take the thought captive. And then you turn that ugly thought into a thought that brings God honor and glory through obedience. And by the way, Acts 5.32, Diane, says that God gives the Holy Spirit, the context there is always in power, he gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. So when we reject an ugly thought or temptation, even if it's something that's really hard for us, we so please the Lord and the power of his Spirit is there with us. So identification, Diane, remember the source of the thought and then turn your thinking around. One of the ways that we do that, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, is by the renewing of our mind every day. Uh, I, I used to have a really foul mouth before I was saved, Diane. And once I got saved, I just knew that was wrong. And I, I remember vividly just thinking, I can't say those things anymore. And so I would really have to get into the presence of the Lord or or the habits, the patterns would repeat themselves. And I can say, Diane, I'm 28 years in the Lord now, and I've only cursed one time. 
I think that was one of those times God was really humbling me. I didn't think I still had it in me and and uh, in a very embarrassing situation, um, this curse word came out. Um, I really have learned to take those thoughts captive and make obedient because I don't want to embarrass him. I don't want to embarrass Paula. I don't want to embarrass our church. So Diane, I hope that helps. 3585 for questions. We see here question from Carlos. Um, Pastor Ron, when people say have faith in God or trust God, is there a certain way to practice that? This is Carlos from the Northeast side. Thanks for always responding. Carlos, good to hear from you. I haven't heard from you for a little while. And we always worry about people who uh, drop off the radar. So good to hear from you. Um, you know, Carlos, faith is, is actively trusting God. You know, I can say, um, you know, I have faith in God. He saved me. He's going to take me to heaven. But when, when people are telling you to have faith in God or trust God, when you're going through something difficult, it means you have to actively trust him in the middle of that problem. It means you don't take matters into your own hands. Instead of you acting, you wait on the Lord. Now, waiting is hard. Nobody wants to be patient. But, but there are just some things that we do uh, under pressure or some choices that we make when we're being influenced by other people instead of waiting on and trusting in God. So the way to practice it is just say yes to the Lord every day. Say no to you and yes to the Lord. Um, let me give you an example, Carlos, from, from things that, that I deal with. Um, as you've heard on this program, Carlos, uh, everything we do here at Coward Chapel is for free. We have free school, free family practice doctor's office. We have a uh, a, a home where uh, women in, in bad relationships or women with children can come and live. All of it's for free. We, we charge for nothing. We don't take offerings. And uh, God said a long time ago, don't let your needs be known. There have been times, Carlos, where I was tempted in, in times where we were really, really struggling financially. And we've had a lot of financial struggles at this church because of our faith constantly being tested. And there have been times, especially times when I could look at a passage of Scripture and know that, oh, there's an opportunity to talk about giving. And the battle at times has been so fierce. What to say, what to not, or what not to say. I, I don't want to cross this line, Lord. So, but, you know, dropping a hint here, there, but, oh, you know, things are so hard. And, you know, we're trusting God. You know, that's manipulative. And what I have to do in those times of, and I mean severe temptation, I have to say, Jesus, I'm not going to say anything at all about this. I'm just not going to say anything at all about it. It's it's to you that we look. That's actively trusting God. You know, when God said to start a free school or do any of the other stuff free, it'd be really easy for me and a really difficult time to say, well, you know, maybe God's changed his mind because, you know, things are so hard now. And I could then sort of go off on my own path. I actually considered that one time. I had a pastor friend of mine say, you know, Ron... When we started taking an offering, passing a plate, our offerings went up 40%. I promise you, your giving will go up if you just give people the opportunity to see a plate go in front of them. And the Lord told us, no, we're not supposed to do that. And I had one of those crises. You know, what am I supposed to do? I mean, we need money, but... And always so far now, I've not finished my course yet, but it's so far, it's always come up to that place. Or I say, Jesus, you told me not to do it. You don't change your mind. I'm not going to change my mind. And you know what? I think the Lord is pleased. And I think it's always in those crises when we don't know what to do. We take matters in our own hands. I think we rip ourselves off from being blessed by the Lord more than we'll ever be able to understand until we get to heaven. So, Carlos, that's what they mean. Have faith in God. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus said 
in the upper room with his disciples just prior to his crucifixion. He looked in the faces of his disciples. It's finally sunk in that he really was going to die. And you can imagine what that was like. They would look at each other and say, how could he die? We believed he's God. In fact, they asked him, well, what's going to happen to us? Over and over and over. And he began the whole conversation, Carlos, with this. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And then he said this, in my father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. So when Jesus knew that his disciples were struggling with faith, he didn't give them a pep talk. He just said, trust in God, trust in me, and get your eyes off of things on earth and get your eyes on heaven. It's one of Paul's favorite refrains. He says it to the church at Colossae. Set your heart and your mind, the place of desire and the place of decision on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So that's what active trust means. You're looking for, and Carlos, I think you're married. I think you've told me that before, but if you're a single guy and you're looking for a girlfriend and you're getting lonely and you're tempted to sort of go online and try to find a Christian girl, actively trusting God is saying, Jesus, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to leave this in your hands. Got a job where you're being mistreated. Jesus, I'm going to leave this in your hands. I'm not going to do what I want to do, what emotionally I want to do. I'm going to trust you. That's what active trust is. That's what it means to have faith in God. There's saving faith and then there's living faith. Better put faith for living. And Carlos... You've got that kind of faith. So trust in God. Trust also in me, Jesus said. Let's go to our next question. Jeffrey. Ooh, this is a tough one. Um, Pastor Ron, what are the biggest challenges facing the church in the next five years? Um, Jeffrey, I think there's one overriding concern that that we appear to be losing the battle. Now, when I say this, I'm aware that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But we're living in the last days when things are going to get much, much worse before they get better. And I think the biggest challenge facing the church in the next five years is how we view the Bible, the Word of God. And you can look around and you can see what's going on in this world and you can look at churches and there's hardly any Bible teaching. There's lots of preaching and yelling and excitement and funny stories and, you know, rock bands and lights and smoke. We just don't sit and open the Word and trust that the Word is going to change people's lives. You know, Jeffrey, I've had... 24 years of being the pastor here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. It's a church that we started from scratch. And I look back on 24 years and every single wonderful thing that's happened, not most wonderful things, every single wonderful thing that's happened has happened as a result of us being faithful to teach the Bible. We declare his word. We explain it to people. We apply it in their lives. And the Holy Spirit grabs hearts and changes people. And I think that's the biggest challenge. We've, we've simply lost our zeal, our passion for the Bible. And I think there are more churches that have lost that passion than those who still have it. And I think that's a tragedy. The Bible speaks of a great falling away in apostasy. It's going to happen before Jesus returns. I think we are in the middle of that falling away right now. So that's the first one. Another one that I would say, of course, is dealing with cultural issues. You know, how is the church in the United States going to deal with persecution? I mean, we we face the very real possibility in the now, not too distant future of having what we do, simply teaching the Bible 
declared hate speech. There are states and cities that are changing their laws. They call it anti-discrimination laws. And they're saying that employment practices for churches can't be any different than employment practices for private or public businesses. Meaning they're trying to force us to hire unbelievers, to hire homosexuals, because they call it discrimination. I think it's going to cost us a lot. And I'm just not so sure that we're grounded enough in our faith. Carlos's question about have faith in God, trust in God. How are we going to respond when that might send us to jail? How's our faith going to be when somebody decides on social media to ruin your life because you said that homosexuality was a sin? Or because you said that there's no such thing as transgender? You're either male or female. And somebody wants to destroy your life because you took that position. So the cultural wars, I think, are the second biggest challenge. And of course, that follows our loss of passion for the Word of God. Um, So I think those are the two biggest challenges facing the church in the next five years. Not quite at that level, Jeffrey, but but another one that just popped into my mind is um, the church being influenced by the culture instead of the church influencing the culture. I think a lot of churches in their zeal to get younger and more vibrant, I think that spells compromise. And when we start compromising, we're done. We're done. Lord Jesus, come quickly, and I believe he is. So, Jeffrey, off the top of my head, those are the three biggest challenges, I think, facing the church in the next five years. The question I'd ask you, Jeffrey, the question I ask myself every day is this one. What about me? What am I going to do when those things happen? I'm getting to be an old man, and I don't want to in the last part of my life in jail. I don't want to be the subject on a social media site. Uh, I just want to serve Jesus. I want to love his people. I want to teach the Bible. I want to keep watching people get saved. And I think the enemy is creating a scenario where all those things are going to be much harder to do. Zeke wants to know, how should I respond to a pastor who says God gives him new revelation, especially when those revelations don't agree with the Bible? Well, Zeke, I hope it's not your pastor, because if it's your pastor, you need to leave. If you have a pastor or are talking to a pastor who says God gives him new revelation, then then this is a man, or in some cases a woman, has sort of gone off the rails. And so I would just tell him there's nothing new from Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many, um, and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us, and literally in the Greek, it's in son. In other words, Jesus is his final word. We don't need any new revelation. I tell our church sometimes if it's true, it's not new, and if it's new, it's not true. So this is a pastor that you, one, need to pray for, but talk to him respectfully, but at the same time just say, you know, God will not contradict himself. And if you say this, and the Bible says this, you've got to choose what the Bible says. The things that we hear from the spirit world, First John 4, 1 says, test the spirits because not every spirit is from God. 
And Zeke, you asked this question, and uh, there are a lot of pastors now. We talked about the challenges facing the church. There are a lot of pastors now who are coming out publicly saying that they've changed their views on homosexuality and same-sex marriage um, because God has revealed to them that love is the most important thing. That's not love. To let somebody engage in lifestyle, to encourage somebody to live in a lifestyle that's going to cause them to spend eternity in torment is not loving at all. So talk to him, pray for him. If he is your pastor, go find another church. So Zeke, I hope that answers your question. How are we doing on time? Under two minutes. Nope, we just hit one minute, so I won't have time for that. Hey, ladies, let me suggest that uh, if you didn't watch uh, our Sweet Summer Devotions on Monday, um, Rhoda Pickens was a speaker. You can go to calvarysa.com and listen. I listened to it yesterday, and I was just so blessed. Uh, and and we've got eight more weeks of this to come. So um, calvarysa.com, go to the Sweet Summer Devotions or current studies, and you'll see Sweet Summer Devotions. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this has been the word to stand on for life. May the Lord touch your heart today. Give him everything. You won't be sorry. See you tomorrow, Lord willing. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.